This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. DigitalOcean recently launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data, such as images and large media files, user-generated content, backups, and logs. Spaces is available for a simple $5 per month price that includes 250 gigabytes of storage and one terabyte of outbound bandwidth. Additional storage is priced at the lowest rate available, one cent per gigabyte transferred and two cents per gigabyte stored. This provides cost savings of up to 10 times along with predictable pricing and no surprises on your monthly bill. Try it for free with a two-month trial by going to do.co slash seradio. Welcome to Software Engineering Radio. My name is Brian Ranero. Harsh Sinha is VP of Engineering at TransferWise, an international money transfer platform. Harsh was Director of Product at PayPal, where he led the product strategy and development of PayPal's mobile apps and software development kits. Harsh also spent 10 years at eBay, starting as a software development intern and rising to head of software engineering. Harsh is also an advisor and an investor in early stage startups. Welcome, Harsh, to Software Engineering Radio. Thanks for having me, Brian. Today, we're discussing product management, which deals with the planning, delivery, and marketing of a software product. We'll discuss how those functions are achieved and how product management interfaces with engineering. To begin, uh, I'd like to ask, what is product management? So product management is a multifaceted discipline. Um, Basically, the way I think about product management is all the tasks needed to take an idea, a fledgling idea, to the strategy of execution of that idea, the execution with the team to bring that product live to the customer. And then the lather, rinse, repeat of that process where you learn from the customer and then iterate on the idea and improve the product. So the ownership of that entire process is usually done by an individual in a team who's called a product manager. So it's a, it's a function that it's not just a one-time function where you're uh, dreaming up new products. It's, uh, as you say, iterative, that it's a cyclical process of yeah. uh, uh, planning. Definitely. What are the responsibilities of a product manager? So I would break down the responsibilities of a product manager into three main themes. So the first one would be what I call inspiring. Inspiring from a perspective of having an idea If you're working at a company, let's say it's a startup or a large organization, usually the company has a larger goal or mission statement, or you can call it as the vision of the company. From there, you as a product manager have to think of ideas, work with the team, work with the customers to understand what do you need to build to add more value and align the product towards that vision of achieving the goal that is initially set by the company. And uh, that is requires a lot of inspiration, getting inspiration from the customers, but then also inspiring the team within to build this product. And under inspiration, I would say there's a lot of work around understanding the market, understanding customer needs, understanding how your current product uh, is placed along with other products and competitors in the market, and what is the real true value proposition that you're providing to the customer. So the way I think about it is, in this phase, you would think about answering the questions, which are, what is the problem you are solving? 
What does the customer, why does the customer care about this problem that you're solving? And why does it matter to the customer and who does it matter to? Along with this, in the inspiration process, you would also have to define success and fail criteria for everything that you launch. So if you're going to run um, an experiment to test whether a new feature is going to add value or not to the customer experience, before you even think about writing your first line of code or getting anything done, you have to define and work with the team to understand what would be the success and fail criteria. So that is kind of the umbrella of the inspiration part and thinking about the ideation of the product. The second part, which is a big role that a product manager plays in a team, is prioritization. So product managers tend to get feedback from all different uh, places. They get feedback from the customer, as I said before. They look at the analytics and what the market's doing. They look at what the competitors are doing. They also get feedback from the team as to what's possible to build and not to build um, in the overall product lifecycle. And taking all this data and feedback, helping the team to prioritize as to what are the next top things to build, what are the next top things to get right as the product's evolving, is a large part of um, the product manager's role. It doesn't mean that the product manager goes into a conference room by themselves or in a queue by themselves and just puts their head down and prioritizes across an Excel spreadsheet. But it's more about having the dialogue and having the harder conversations with the team uh, based on scoping, sizing, possibility of building what is desired right now in the market versus what the technology can do. All that input has to be taken into helping eventually the team have the conversation to come out with a prioritized list of things to do. And the third part of uh, the responsibilities of a product manager, I feel, are um, execution. So um, nothing gets built with just strategy. Execution is, um, we leave strategy for lunch, uh, dinner, and breakfast. So, um, so execution is a very critical part of product management. And uh, from my perspective, the big things that product managers tend to execute on and have to be good at is, um, of course, defining the product specifications based on the, uh, the first two parts of the ownership that I just described, which was inspiration uh, and ideation and then prioritization. Um, second part is not just defining the happy flow, but also defining the unhappy flow and the edge cases when the product uh, would not work or would not work as always desired. Third part is um, kind of being the project manager to an extent of making sure things are getting delivered and if there are blockers that are impacting the team, uh, some of this could be outside the team, then helping drive those conversations across team and across the company to make sure those blockers are removed so that the team can move forward. And finally, in the spirit of the learn, build, measure, learn process, making sure the analytics are set up correctly, are read correctly, uh, interpreted correctly to determine whether the experiment or the learnings uh, are a success or a failure and feeding that back into the iteration cycle so that the product keeps continuing to be uh, iterated on and improved. So that's how I see other what the responsibilities of a product manager are. I see. So uh, there, there's these multiple phases that, that you have to discover what, uh, uh, what the needs of the customer are uh, then again, articulating those needs uh, to uh, the uh, the team, the engineering team, mm -hmm. to be executed, uh, and then and then the job is not done at that point. You've got to help see it through to execution and then deployment, and then even at that point, the job is not done. Uh, you need to gather metrics um, to determine success, uh, degrees of success, and and then start the process over again. Yes. So, uh, an interesting question would be. 
why should this job be done by an individual product manager? Are there cases that it would be easier just to have customers talk to the engineering team directly? So that's a very interesting question. At TransferWise specifically, we tend to do this. So we believe in having as few people between the customer and the uh, engineers as possible. So we have set up cases where engineers take customer calls directly, working with our CS agents. Um, engineers um, answer emails and chats directly. And the idea here is to not, not basically have the engineers become CS agents or become uh, the person who's just talking to the customer, but actually trying to give the pain, the feeling of the pain that the customer is going through to the engineers. And that way, when the engineers are building something and building the product, they understand the why, uh, why they're building part uh, as they're shipping stuff. That said, there is only so many cycles in a day, so many hours in a day, and engineers do have to execute and write the code and develop the systems that drive the product and drive the experience. And um, from an efficiency perspective also, it is good to have one person or a group of people who can actually collate, talk to different uh, folks, whether it's customers, whether it's partners, whether it's other, uh, if you're in a, you know, B2B business, other businesses, who can then tell you um, what is it that they want and distill that down to a few um, larger themes that then the team executes on. Also, there is a little bit of a skill set um, question here too. Like for most engineers, it's not always natural to be able to get out in front of customers and be able to speak their language and understand the specifics uh, of the requirements that they are asking for. Uh, because engineers a lot of times tend to be a little bit more involved in the technical details of things. So product manager can also act as a good translator and a medium to convert those customer voice into actual internal implementation specifics. But overall, we do push a transfer wise to have engineers speak directly to customers. Yeah, I imagine that avoids um, some items getting lost in translation or, or having the needs or pains of the customer somehow um, changed by a game of telephone. Definitely. That's the main reason why we do this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, generally speaking, it would be then for a, a mistake uh, to, to, to think of the product manager as a person that should be uh, filtering or uh, uh, somehow being the, the conduit of communication from the customer to the engineering team. It's always, it sounds like it's a, it's always better to have that kind of uh, customer access, or at least being able to understand the customer's needs and pains. Yeah, definitely. So as I said before, like I think the product manager's role is to clarify and explain the why and the what of the problem, and then let the engineers figure out the how. But um, how do you do that in a manner such that you don't take away very specific details that the customer um, shared? Um, so that, that the voice of the customer really carries through to the engineering team is important. Is there a document, uh, a formalized uh, format that a product manager or product management should provide that articulates the customer pains? Um, what, uh, in this process of discovery, what, what does the product management provide to the engineering team to, to clarify and categorize the customer pains? Yeah, so I've worked in um, and worked in different size organizations and uh, built uh, different size teams. So I think it varies a lot from organization to organization how structured this is. So I've worked in teams where 
you know, product managers write down specifications in Word documents, and then you know, it goes through multiple reviews and peer reviews before it makes it into the engineering uh, engineering teams um, uh, inboxes. It seems to be a much more traditional approach, and I'm sure the organization is running that way uh, even now. I still remember back in the day when I was at eBay in the early days, there used to be a template of a document called a PRD, a product requirements document. And that literally was the uh, template used by every product manager in the organization that would um, be uh, answering a bunch of questions on every feature that is proposed to being launched. And it was a full-on, you know, 40-pager kind of document where you would have screenshots or uh, wireframes and everything specified in that. And then uh, this would make it to the engineering manager or the engineering team, and then they would go through that and interpret the document into an ERD, which was an engineering requirements document, which was even longer, and which talked to the took the product requirements document and built technical implementation details uh, to that before it actually went into the full implementation process for the product. Um, now, what I just spoke about is a much more waterfall life cycle of developing a product. Uh, this is when we used to um, take you know a few months to ship a product at least. Um, now the days the way um, we see teams working and product specifications working are much more um, higher level. So um, I can give you an example of how we work on this in TransferWise. In TransferWise we tend to run smaller product teams. So we usually have one product manager with about um, anywhere between three to six engineers on a product team. And these product teams are full stack. So we'll also have um, uh, CS people, CS representatives, uh, customer support, uh, operations representatives. If we need to have a business partner or a banking person, given we're in financials, that person is also on the team. And overall, the team plans together and um, prioritizes together and understands why they're building what they're building. And the product specification usually starts off in a ticketing system like Jira, which would be starting with an epic, which where you specify what are the major tasks and the major, what is the main theme that you're trying to achieve here and what is the main value prop. And from there, then the epic's broken down into specific tasks, which are iterated on by the product team. So that's how basically it's set up now. So um, having smaller teams and usually one or two location teams that work uh, well across um, Hangouts uh, also helps drive that uh, conversation where you don't have to write as many documents, but really there's an iterative process, so the feedback loop is going faster. So it, uh, one thing I noticed that you said that the uh, financial team uh, may be part of the, the product team. Does that mean that the, uh, the team that product managers or product management interfaces when the product team is a cross-functional team? Very much. Um, TransferWise, we're completely, uh, when I say full stack, it means a cross-functional team of having all disciplines that's needed to get that part of the product life. Is that difficult to achieve and still maintain a small team? I think it varies, but in general, so I'll give you an example of customer support. So, of course, if we launch one part of the product, let's say um, TransferWise has a, we have a product which um, allows you to sh- move money between uh, US to the UK. So there'll be a core team of customer support in uh, individuals who are supporting that route. So we would not have the entire team in the stand-up and in the planning sessions, but you'd have a representative, one representative from that team who understands the scope and the challenges that the customer support team and the customer interactions is creating um, to give input to the team. So we tend to have some representative representatives for larger teams, but then the core engineering team and um, product 
team will be there. So usually there's one product manager and a few engineers. I see. So uh, it sounds like the, the process and each iterative cycle of managing the product, developing the product, the customer is an important aspect uh, of the, the process, especially for the responsibilities of product management. Why is the customer so important? I mean, I guess in this product-driven world, the way we, um, we're we here to solve customer problems. Um, if we just are building stuff without getting input from the customer, then it's probably more of a hobby project or a, or a project where it's, um, you're trying to do something where you're trying to learn a new technology or do something which is uh, very specific to your needs. But uh, given that we are here to solve customer problems, having the customer's voice and the customer input and feedback throughout the process to understand what's working, what's not working is super important. Else, uh, uh, teams can drift very quickly based on their own assumptions. So one thing we see quite often is um, anecdotal evidence being taken as um, the direction, as real evidence. Um, it's the whole thing of, um, you know, people thinking their problem is the biggest problem to solve. So if you are moving money between US and UK and you see a specific behavior that is true for you and your friends, uh, 10 friends around you, you think that the world's like you, uh, as opposed to having feedback from the larger group of customers who are moving money on transfers between US and UK and then taking their uh, verbal feedback and uh, quantitative scores around the feedback that we request and making decisions on that. So that's why it's important to make sure we don't get the bias of just, you know, the unconscious proximity bias or the context of just working in your own, uh, to solve your own problems. And in the case that uh, a new product is being developed, how do you get that feedback when you don't yet have customers? Uh, you're maybe exploring whether uh, uh, this project is feasible. How do you understand who you're customer might be? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so new product development cycle is a little different than iterating on an existing product. Usually, again, you would start from the basics, like um, I mentioned before. So you're trying to understand what is the problem you're trying to solve and why would a customer care um, that you're solving this problem? Why does it matter to the customer? Um, who are the other people who are solving this problem? Is it actually, are you solving problem number um, 40? on their list, as uh, one of my professors from Berkeley, Steve Plank, would say, or are you solving problem number uh, one, two, three? And uh, it's very important because, uh, as I said before, a lot of times we tend to think if we have this problem, a specific problem, that's the biggest problem to solve. So whenever you're doing new product development, there's a lot of time you have to spend around researching whether it actually is a problem in the market that the market requires to. Um, is it a big enough problem that the market needs be solved currently and one of the things that you look at is to see how are customers solving the problem right now what is the offering that exists in the market right now and then you try to think about could i build a product which is an order of magnitude better than what exists in the market this is where you hear things like is it 10x better is it 50x better but the idea is the same whether it's 10 or 50 but the is it an order of magnitude better that solution that you're providing to your customers um, than what exists in the market. If it's only 20% better, if it's 10% better, the probability of a customer switching or changing the entire workflow is very, very low. And it can be a very, very big uphill battle to acquire users. So once you've done this kind of thinking and understanding what the market is, what is the problem you're solving? Um, why would the customer care to care, would they care enough to switch? That's when they start think, defining the success and fill criterias. Um, you start thinking about what the flow would be. Uh, you start doing certain bits of user testing 
So this is more qualitative work where you develop wireframes or mocks um, and you try to get out there and talk to potential customers. So it's very, in that process, you also identify who your potential customers would be. So um, getting out there, um, you know, buying somebody a coffee at Starbucks and sitting down uh, if it's a consumer facing product and actually working through the process of understanding, uh, explaining the product to the customer and see if they're getting it. Um, do they understand the value proposition? Uh, would they think that this is something that they would use? Would they think that this is something that they would pay for? Those are the things that you try to iterate and learn very quickly in the early phases without even building any any product and any tech and any code. And from there, then, of course, you get more evolved. You start doing some basic prototypes and uh, you throw something up as a small, small application and see how people use it, drive some traffic to it. That's kind of the iteration of a new product process. So in the uh, the idea of user cases, is that something that would go in the PRD? What would be what would be some of the things that I would find inside of an example PRD? Yes, use cases would definitely be things that would go into a PRD. Um, just a general flow of um, what are you what's the problem you're solving and how would the customers solve that problem um, with the car, with the product that you're building. So that's that's definitely something that would go into the PRD. That would include use cases, uh, edge cases, uh, defining for each use case um, what would be the success fail criteria, and then going deeper into understanding how would you even set up analytics and what are the things to track to make sure that eventually as the product goes live, uh, you know what the parameters were and what the markers were or what the attributes were that you were testing for. How is that fed into the reporting engine? All that stuff would be defined. And uh, is it important to have a description of the customer, like a profile in that document as well? Yes. Um, so different teams do this differently. Some people define it as customer personas. Some define it as like an ideal user. But having some kind of description of who you're solving the problem for is very important. So we have the PRD that describes the use cases, the customer. Uh, can you give me some examples of the analytics that would be useful? The, uh, these analytics uh, would be metrics for measuring the success of the product. What kind of, what kind of things would, be, would we be looking for? So some of the basic analytics would be things like, let's say you started a new product. You're trying to understand how many people are landing to see that product or seeing that product um, landing page, for example, or a home page. Or if it's an app, then the home screen, like how many people are actually visiting, as I would say, um, to explore the product. And from so you would start looking at like non-logged in or session-based visitors. And then you would basically build out a regular conversion funnel. So if your product is something that requires, in the end, somebody to take an action, and there is a whole process of converting that person from a visitor to an actual signed up and registered user to actually doing the first transaction. So I'll give you the example of TransferWise again. For us, a, a user is a user once they've created the first transfer and completed the first transfer. That means money has moved on the platform. If you've just signed up as a user and you've created an account, given us your email address and set up your account, but you haven't created and funded your first transfer and the money hasn't showed up on the other side, we don't count you as a user yet. So now through this whole process, there's this conversion funnel that we look at. So we look at somebody who lands on the, our, let's say our website landing page as a visitor. Then what did they do as they interacted with the page? Did they, you know, how much time did they spend on the page? Did they scroll around? Did they uh, interact with certain components, certain elements of a page which, ex which explain what we do, how money moves, what is the value proposition that you have? We have a calculator on our homepage which 
tells you the basics around if you were to move a thousand US dollars to pounds, how much money would you get uh, in the end on the other side in UK? What would be the fees? So did they play with that calculator? If they did, that means like there is some intent, there's some engagement. And from that process, then you would start seeing where do they fall off if they do fall off and leave the, the platform before they completed the first transfer. So did they fall off if they clicked on get started, which is on our calculator, which takes you to our uh, sign up page. From there, did they go into that page and fill out the um, username and uh, email address, give us their email address and um, set up their account. Did, then then did, did they go into the flow of creating the first transfer, which is a step-by-step -step flow of giving us details of how much money you want to move, what is your account information, what is uh, the recipient information, and just tracking this entire process of uh, making sure where the user is, where the user drops off, did they have difficulties or errors in filling out any of these fields? How much time did they spend? These are some of the metrics that you would calculate to understand how the product is doing. Uh, eventually, the success or fail of this product would uh, be things like, as I said before, did you, how many users of the total number of users or visitors who visited the site converted, as in exited the funnel with converting to create a new transfer. So, and then you start measuring metrics like, oh, what is a conversion rate? It is 10%, is it 20%, is it um, you know, 35%? And from there, then you understand what are the things that you can improve to increase that conversion rate. So you go to this one level deeper into some of these uh, analytic numbers that I talked about, or metrics I talked about, whether they're getting dropped off at their registration play page, did they get an error? Did they spend a lot of time on the homepage, but then dropped off there? Did they interact with certain components? That's how you look at it. So it, it's probably, of course, the case that each different product is going to have a different set of metrics. But generally speaking, the, the, the reason that you're collecting this data is to improve the product, understand the user better, and see where the product is fulfilling the needs of the user and where it's failing to. Yes, exactly. So this would also lend me to think that the, as you gather these uh, metrics and, and process this information, that gets fed back into the PRD and it may change the user stories that you originally started out with. Uh, the PRD becomes a living document. It's, it's, there's a feedback loop in there. Is that correct? Yes. It depends again on the organization and how, what processes exist in the company. So that's at TransferWise, we don't do as much PRDs, um, but you know we work more in like, more agile manner with epics and tasks. But then the idea being the same, that given the feedback and the and the analytics, what the numbers are showing, this feedback would flow back into new requirements, whether it's in the form of a PRD iteration or it's in the form of a new epic, new stories, new, uh, new plans. Um, it varies based on the company. So, uh, yeah, it seems like the, the process is, is designed to it sounds like the, the process is designed at TransferWise to be able to uh, iterate quickly and reduce friction so that rather than being on a periodic or uh, you're cyclical in nature, but you're not periodic in nature. It's more yeah. of a continuous. Yes. And also we push our uh, setup such that once a product's live, even in the early stages of the product being developed, engineers are much more closely involved with understanding the whys, just like a product manager would. And um, ideally, the way we iterate then after the product's live is the engineers are very much into the analytics and the data too. So then they can read the data and try to make uh, assumptions and like make inf inferences and understanding uh, what's working, what's not working. Because a lot of times you've seen that with that input, 
um, the iteration speed can be even faster because the engineer has actionable data to interpret and work through and then iterate the product quicker. And in that case, the product manager then takes the step of, um, takes the seat of uh, role of coaching the engineer and in interpreting the data and like moving along the product. And usually there's more engineers than a product person on a team. So if you think about every feature that's live, if there are more engineers who take ownership of this feature being live in production, the iteration speed increases because it doesn't have to go to one person who's a product manager who's interpreting all the data and giving instructions to, to the team on how to move things along. That's a, an important distinction. So in the in the case then that this feedback is arriving, the analytics, the, the team is uh, processing these analytics, that the tickets are generated. Is there a triage process uh, or th- that goes directly back into the, the backlog? How is that How is that processed? Yeah, I mean, usually that's how um, teams would operate here. Again, we don't believe in having, uh, um, we believe in solving the problems that the teams have. Um, so every team kind of has their own slight modifications of process as opposed to having one singular process for the entire company. So the way most teams uh, in Francois would work is um, the feedback would come in that would go into some form of a backlog in the form of tickets. And then uh, usually teams run on a one-week or a two-week cadence. Most of the teams here run on a one-week cadence. And before the team would go into planning for what they're going to achieve or do on Monday morning for the week, um, usually the product lead and the team lead, engineering team lead, would get together and do a quick triage so that they don't spend as much time in the planning session with where there's a larger group of people explaining and discussing some of the prioritization work. But um, they will pick up things that have already been noteworthy from the previous weeks and bring that in the backlog and drop some of the other stuff that may not be as relevant. So that way you have an efficient use of the time during planning and the iteration for the next of the week. Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with username and password, social and enterprise identity providers such as Facebook, Twitter, AD, or Office 365, or without passwords using Slack or WhatsApp. Getting started is very easy. Use one of more than 40 SDKs and add a few lines of code. No credit card required. Get the free plan at auth0.io slash seradio. That's A-U-T-H, the number zero, dot I-O slash seradio. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Optimizely, and Financial Times. Try it out at auth0.io slash seradio and get back time building core features. Can you tell me... uh what a product roadmap is and um, given your process, uh, do you use a product roadmap? Um, we have the definition of product roadmap for us is a little bit more like a vision document, I would say. So every team, again, operates a little differently. We launched something recently called the borderless account. So the borderless account is a, a new type of virtual bank account that we created where it allows businesses and consumers to hold balances in different countries uh, in different currencies um, easily, and then you can get paid and pay out as a local person in all these countries. So people in, across 20 different countries can now just, sitting in their own country, open an account in the uh, with a USD currency or a UK currency, and they also have local US, UK bank account specifications. So you could be sitting in India and you could have a... US bank account with a bank account number and a routing number. And now if you're a freelancer, then you can get paid locally 
in that bank account number and routing number, which is a big deal for a lot of people because if they're doing business cross-border, then when the clients are paying, that gives when they issue the when they give the invoice in the local U.S. routing number and account number, they seem more legitimate. They are more trustworthy, and also the payer doesn't have to deal with dealing with um, cross-border transfers and stuff like that. So now this process uh, and this product is pretty new for us. We launched it about uh, uh, five months ago, and for that, there's much there's a bigger product roadmap, which is like a vision document. And then that breaks down into different phases. And in those phases, as you go out further in, like say phase one, phase two, phase three, the phase three would be more nebulous with higher level problems that we're trying to solve for the customer. Um, but then phase one, phase two, which we would be right now in, would have um, be linking would be linking into this kind of backlog and this kind of um, Jira dashboard that we were talking about, where you have all the epics defined and more of the uh, near-term tasks defined clearly. So it sounds like the product roadmap is perhaps more important for projects that are just kicking off, or at least a new phase of the uh, an existing project or product. Yeah, I think uh, it's fair to say. I think the vision document um, definitely is very very important as you start off a new new phase or a new product. And it still is a living document. So as you evolve the product, it should have some of the changes and iterations in it. But it's very, very important in the initial phases to understand the entire scope of what you're trying to build and what problems you're trying to solve. So in each of these phases, uh, obviously, I guess the phase is marked to some area of time, uh, phase one being the near-term goals, phase two, mm-hmm. mid-term goals, th- phase three, far horizon. What kind of items would be inside of each of these phases? What would you describe in each of uh, these these portions? I guess that's uh, that's very relevant to the to the uh, product and the and the implementation strategy. So, in our world, like given we are a fast moving consumer product, um, usually the near term, like phase one, would be um, if it's a new new launch product, then it would be the basics of getting something up and running as an MVP. So minimum viable product, which is, has to be a usable product, but it solves the core customer problem. Uh, and it's very important to get that out to understand uh, how would a customer use it? How would a customer find this product? And uh, knowingly that we know there's a lot of features that are not there yet, the, all the bells and whistles aren't there, but it's a usable product for those people who really have the problem in the market right now the most. Uh, they might still pick it up and uh, use this product in its um, MVP form because they're willing to take the pain of using this because the alternative is so bad. And from that, then you would get more feedback from these early users and early adopters to see what is working, what is not working, and then incorporate that feedback into the iterative cycle. So that could be a larger phase two, phase three, and that's how it would go. So I guess uh, an important aspect of uh, defining what the MVP is, is something that's practical, usable, valuable to the the customer or user, but also don't go too crazy because you want to get it out there to get the feedback from the customer. So yes, definitely. So who is the roadmap written for? Who is the audience of the roadmap? That's an interesting question. I think it varies a lot across companies. In most cases, the roadmap consumer or the audience is the team. So the team that is going to implement and build the product. But I think it it also spans outside the current implementation team. So it could be other teams that possibly need to get, need to help you 
get this product to the market. Uh, it could be other teams who need to understand the impact of you building this product on their roadmaps or on their product. And then in a lot of larger companies, a lot of times the roadmaps are also, um, the audience could be different stakeholders uh, or like, you know, senior leadership. But usually the roadmap is, and uh, the audience for it would be the internal company, company employees um, who are helping build this product. So it's very, very important that the team at least buys into understand, buys into the roadmap and understands the nuances of what's in phase one, phase two, phase three. And then it spans out from there. Um, the further you go away from the team, the roadmap probably gets more higher level for uh, for people. So uh, some of those audiences, it sounds like uh, because product management is a, a, a cross-cutting concern, if you will, or spans so many different teams that the roadmap that's developed should take into consideration is is there a support team or customer success team that needs to understand yes. where the pro- what what product is going to be coming uh, certainly i would imagine that sales would like to know the for- forthcoming features and what the product is going to be that's useful for them as well definitely so it, so anybody who who has involvement with um, marketing i would imagine also is another important uh, audience of the of the roadmap yeah so as i said like you know different teams who are not inside the implementation team, but possibly are impacted. Their work is impacted. Either what they're building is impacted or what they're selling is impacted, what their marketing is impacted, what they're supporting, as in like supporting customers calling in is impacted. All of them would be consumers of the roadmap and they would like to know where the product is right now, when it's going to launch, what are the features, all that stuff. So, uh, and again, taking a look inside of that product roadmap, we would see at each of these phases, I guess it's different for different cultures, different companies, different organizations, but it would it be like a, a list of, of features at each phase is, would it include the user stories? Does it need to be that detailed? Product roadmaps, I think operate at a little bit higher level than, um, than say, you know, what we've been discussing before around PRDs. Some of them for a new product might have user stories or at least personas to give an overview or high level overview of what is the problem we are solving. But in general, roadmaps from there very quickly go down to here are the main things that we're going to launch. And those things are basically capabilities that the users will be given after the product launch. So will they be able to do X, Y, and Z? Uh, That's where um, the roadmap covers, the the level of depth that the roadmap usually covers. We've we've done our customer interviews. We've, We've done our research as to what the product should be and who we're servicing, what users we're servicing with the product. As we go into implementation, the agile team, cross-functional team that is implementing the product or implementing the project, a lot of these functions seem to be fulfilled by the uh, product owner of a uh, of a Scrum team. Is there is the product owner the same thing as a product manager or the same functions? Are there circumstances that they're different people? And if they're different people, how do they interact? Usually in my experience so far, the product owner and the product manager are the same people. In very rare cases, if, for example, it's a very technical project or product change, uh, it might be that the change is owned by the technologist in the team or the technical leader in the team. Um, But in usual cases I've seen is um, the ownership lies on the product manager uh, to eventually bring the product to production uh, or to the live environment in front of customers. This is true for both um, consumer products and um, B2B products that I've seen. In the case that the product management is being achieved by the product owner, what degree should 
let me rephrase that one more time, if I may. In the case that the product manager is interfacing with the product owner, what interaction would those have with regard to uh, prioritizing the backlog, let's say, for instance? So prioritization is a very big role for a product manager to do well in the team. The way we operate and the way I've seen um, teams in general operate, prioritization is a two-way conversation. It's definitely not um, something that's just done by the product manager or product owner. The way it works is basically having an open conversation around what is the customer's uh, expectations. So that's one of the inputs that goes into the prioritization process. Like what is the customer, what is the customer problem that we need to solve first before we get to the later problems? So trying to define the initial MVP. But then also there is quite a bit of input around what is technically possible to build. So it could be the case that while there is a big feature that the customer is asking for, building that specific feature in the initial version might be technically much more challenging or might require quite a few, quite a bit longer than the other features. And it's this song and dance that happens between the technology team or the engineering team and the product team and to understand what would be the initial prioritization to get something out that is still usable, that customers would use and we could learn from and take the feedback. I just caught something that I thought was pretty cool. You say the the technology team and the dream team. The dream team being those that that would request new features and and have a have a, a stake in the vision of the product. Is that is that correct? To take oh, that? sorry, maybe I missed misspoke. I meant the engineering team. I didn't say the dream dream team, but uh, but I guess that's true. There would be a dream team <laughs> dreaming the vision. Really interesting. We have a process for developing a product. We have a process uh, for implementing the product and even getting feedback and metrics to see how it's performing. How can uh, product management, it has some responsibility for the business success of, of the product, it seems to be. Would you say that that's correct? Yes. So in tricky situations uh, where something kind of comes out, there's a new customer, they, they would like functionality and perhaps they would like this functionality uh, prioritized in the backlog or the roadmap or it's something new uh, and it's a big account. I can see that there's a there's kind of an inherent conflict with needing to fulfill the needs of the customer, but also, as you say, that song and dance of the balance of what's technically achievable. How can product managers help mitigate that conflict or deal with it you know uh, when there's there's things that come out of left field that disrupt the the plan yeah i think this is one of the biggest struggles um that a product manager has to deal with as they work with the team and build up build the product so i don't think there's one specific way to handle this i mean you obviously have to weigh the pros and cons and the trade-offs for every discussion and decision. One of the things that I've seen, especially in the case of what you specifically described, which sounds like more like a B2B case, like not a consumer product, uh, but more like a business product or a SaaS product, where you could have one large customer who could really just you know, impact the entire growth or revenue or um, the growth of the product overall. In this case, I think it's important to try and see whatever you do build today for this customer, is that actually going to be used by other customers? I think that's a very big litmus test. Uh, we've seen a lot of products, and I've seen this in my in my career, that uh, tend to make optimizations or uh, changes for one uh, large customer. And large customers also tend, can make a lot of promises, and then you implement something, and something goes out, and then they might still 
move on to some other product or they might not see the value of what you built as much as you had initially thought or promised. So it's important to make sure in the larger scope of the vision of the product or the roadmap that you have and the other customers you have, how does this, um, like, you know, I guess spending a lot of time for the specific team to build this new feature, how does it impact other customers? Could you turn around and sell it to others? If that's the case, and that's true for a decent majority of your customers, then I think still is a better conversation to have than basically just selling and disrupting an entire running product team's roadmap for one uh, one specific uh, left field uh, use case. But I guess, as I said before, it's a pro and con analysis, how much, uh, like in TransferWise case, for example, uh, we are obviously very driven by uh, how much volume our, trans- uh, our platform is pushing and how much how many users we're bringing onto the platform so it would be a trade-off to say if you want to do if you were to do x as opposed to a b and c which was already in our roadmap how much time would it take um what would it what would you have to drop and what is the value that we perceive of a b and c bringing to the business as opposed to doing x and probably in the in the next retrospective after having gone through uh, a situation like that, where a pivot needed to be made to facilitate a business need for a, a potential customer. In the res- retrospective, you would probably examine that and say, uh, could we have mitigated such a thing by being maybe a little bit more, uh, check our alignment with our customers? Are we doing the right research? And I would also imagine that the benefit of having the customer interact with engineers, reducing that barrier means that the engineering team can also be able, they'll understand this requirement um, that it won't feel like it came from left field and they're able to pivot a little bit better because they do understand that customer need. Definitely. So yeah, that's very, very true. Um, and that's why we believe in like getting engineers closer to the customers and the customer problems and understanding the why. Um, and the big part here is also because when you're building that part of the system of writing that code, if you kind of know that this is the kind of requirements that might come in the next uh, five, six, eight months, then you think about that as you design these systems to be able to be extended and to be not required to be uh, very hard-coded or uh, built for us only one specific use case. Now, it's it's often said with regard to the both the responsibility and maybe even the role of a product manager, Product managers are often said to have a lot of influence, but not very much authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that mean? Have you heard that expression before? What, what does that mean? Yes, um, actually, it's funny. I I've heard this expression of like you know the product manager is the CEO of the team, and I actually don't believe that's very true in a lot of ways. Usually, the CEO of a company, for example, has a lot of authority in the company and could um, you know could make hire and fire decisions. In a lot of ways, that doesn't apply for the product manager. The part the part which might be true is the inspiration piece. So usually, in a lot of cases, in uh, most companies, the CEO tends to be the people who been the initial founder of the product or at least are in, seen as the inspiration who's driving the requirements and the strategy at the overall company level and the company vision. And from that perspective, I do think product manager's biggest role is um, to inspire and lead from uh, inspiring and influencing. So there's this thing that we um, we talk about at in TransferWise. Um, the engineers we hire, they, our team's called product engineering. It's not just engineering. And as I've said before earlier in the podcast, 
push engineers to get closer and closer to the customers to understand the whys of what they're building. And um, engineers in our company have the right to walk from their team or vote with their feet when they believe that what they're working on doesn't anymore help the customer, uh, the transverse customer as much as working on something else. So in that setup, the product manager's role is even harder because um, they need to explain and have the voice of the customer front and center and really inspire the engineers to be doing the best work in uh, in moving this product forward. And I think that's where having the ability to be able to do storytelling or like to be able to be very clear in communications uh, and bringing the voice of the customer into the room and being able to explain what, the why and the what is very, very important because you don't have um, authoritative uh, power usually across your team. So that's interesting uh, that because, uh, especially in your case, that engineers can elect to participate in a, in a project, it's, it's the case that a product manager or product owner should not only expect questions, maybe uh, healthy in arguments uh, about the product and the features, but also invite it as well. Yes, very true. In fact, if you're not having a healthy discussion or a debate about uh, what you're trying to build, then maybe maybe you're not getting enough people interested into the problem that you're trying to solve, which eventually would lead to possibly not having a lot of people working on it with you. So in that, that aspect too, the healthy debate, that also implies that there's probably some soft skills involved with this role and responsibility that in order to keep the debate healthy and productive and not being a personal argument, but maybe a a more loyally argument, for lack of a better term, you're arguing for a solution, not for a position, is is what I'm I'm saying, that that requires a certain set of soft skills that are important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at product managers, successful product managers, they're definitely very good. Um, They're high on EQ and um, they're very good on um, being able to assess the situation in which different people are interacting and be able to move the conversation forward around solving a customer problem and the solution and not being really held on to their viewpoint only. Um, Also like overall product management as the company grows and, and different companies are different about this, but in a lot of larger companies, the role of a product manager is also having the being the ear on the ground for the team to understand what's happening across the company um, if it needs other teams to help do something to get your product launched then being able to like you know for lack of a better term negotiate that that gets picked up in the roadmap and being able to explain the same aspect of why this is important for the other team to do for the company and for also it's how it aligns to their larger goal of their team. So there's a lot of soft skills and a lot of um, back and forth conversation that is um, uh, conversational skills that are required in general and understanding how people are motivated and teams are motivated to um, drive along on the, along the same path for the same vision. Many product managers are from engineering. They, they may have been core contributor mm-hmm. or a individual contributor at some time. What kind of pitfalls with that particular career path, what, uh, rather not pitfalls, but difficulties might somebody have when they transfer from from an engineering, purely engineering role into a, a product management position? Yeah, actually, I had a similar role, so I can walk you through my experience. Um, so the biggest thing, so I think actually some of the best product managers are ex-engineers. And I think the reason for that is because some of the things that a non-technical, non, non-engineering product manager might face is the 
not under is not understanding what goes into building a product which but something that might seem very simple on the front end uh, from an experience perspective might require quite a bit of complex setup in the back end and uh, usually you see this conversation go pretty poorly when people say like a product manager might be saying like hey it's so simple it's like two pages and two clicks why does it take so much time or um, that company can do this and they launch it faster than us like what's what's going on like you know and that that basically shows that the product manager is not understanding in a lot of cases um, it shows that the product manager is not understanding the nuances of what's pr- problematic or tough to do in the technology infrastructure of that specific company or product so i think having a technical background definitely helps you uh, get closer uh, get a closer understanding and um, of what it takes to build but also helps you be in the good strides of the engineering counterparts who are going through that process of building in that specific infrastructure the flip side to this is if you move from engineering to product management and you are now helping drive some of these conversations you have to be careful to not be very prescriptive to your engineering team because just because you did it before and you would do it in a certain way that doesn't mean that that's exactly the way that the team thinks that they should be implementing those changes too so the first thing i would say is while it's good to know how your product and system works you need to be careful that you actually to pull yourself out of the specific implementation details on a day to day basis as time goes by because technology stacks evolve technology products evolve very quickly so what might have been true if you moved from a engineering uh, individual contributor role into a product management role what might have been true on day 1 day 2 of you moving um the system might have evolved in 6 months that it might not be as true anymore and nobody really likes to be told how to do their job so it's like it's better to be operating at a higher level and helping the engineering team move on prioritization and making sure they understand the vision and the why and the how sorry the what and the why but the way they can help team is by asking the right questions so it's fine to ask hey i remember this part of the stack was built this way could we have this in the shorter term could we do x y and z shortcut if needed because we really really need to try and learn and test but then come back and fix this as opposed to just saying why don't you just go and do this i know this part of the code this how it should be done there's a nuance there um so i think that's very true for early product managers who move from engineering to product and then also if you are still stuck in engineering trying to go all the way deep into the implementation you only have x hours in a week to work so how are you helping the team uh, with the other stuff that we talked about earlier about understanding the customer the analytics uh, prioritization cross team work all of the stuff is being dropped probably you're not spending as much time on it because you're still stuck in part of the code to try and figure out how to best implement this yeah that's a good point it might be easier for those of us that come from engineering to kind of flavor our product management style with too heavily with with engineering focused stuff and and neglect the interaction with customers finding customers facilitating their conversations with the engineering team that can that can go undone Yes. And in general like engineers and technologists in general tend to be more um solutions focused. So given a problem we try to like gravitate towards a solution and the whole premise of product management is to continue to go down the rabbit hole of why and what more than how. And uh if you stick to the how more then it basically not doing a helpful service to your team. So how should a product manager judge or measure the success of themselves? How should the team what expectations of the should the team have of the product manager so i think 
the way I think about this is uh, for most good teams, you know, teams rise and fall or like, you know, succeed or fail together. But some, when I see great product managers, um, if you're the product owner, tend to take the victories where it's a team effort and they tend to take the blame a little bit on themselves on like, you know, and not just because they should be the fall guy, but more around uh, being the leader in the team and uh, being able to articulate and do retros and be able to point as to what could have been done differently as opposed to expecting the team to just figure that out themselves. And um, I think that's very, very important. If you look at really good product leaders, they tend to have this thing in common where the success is always goes to the team executing well and understanding the problem that they're solving and shipping something that is really loved by the users. Around the success criteria, I think if you take that into consideration, if you have, um, if you have if the team is learning faster and if his team is like being able to iterate and get more feedback from the customers and improve the product faster than if they did not have the product manager in the team, that is a very, very big sign that the product manager is being successful. So how do you get to learnings as quickly as possible and actionable learnings as quickly as possible is another way that I, I think product teams value and um, measure the success of a product manager. Now, of course, not one person doesn't make the team. So of course, the team has to be willing to go through that process of actionable learnings and iteration. But given all the different elements of uh, building a product, in a product team, you'll usually have designers who look at making user flows very, very nice and beautiful and usable uh, and making a rich user experience. You've got engineers who think about architecting a really scalable, um, extendable system. And you've got customer support folks, you've got who are providing great service, you've got all these different functions. And the product manager kind of is the bridge or the glue between all these uh, functions. And they tend to be the person who is carrying the vision and making sure that the entire machine is running and keeping the main goal in mind of which metrics they're moving, how they're moving it, and making sure the team's focused and not getting too narrowly bogged down in their own domains. So if eventually the team gets to the point where they're having these actionable learnings and really moving customer metrics, then a lot of credit does go back to the product manager implicitly within the team because the product manager is helping the team succeed. And one final question, a parting thought, what would you say is the single most important aspect of, a, of product management as a discipline? Wow. Um, <laughs> I think it is about enabling the team, inspiring the team, enabling the team to learn and iterate fast and then getting out of the way. Yeah, it's nice. It sounds, of course, that a success of a product manager is not necessarily the right perspective, but perhaps that what is going to be successful is going to have the team be successful. The team becomes more enabled, more empowered, more efficient, more capable. Exactly. Yeah, so exactly. The success of the product manager, like any other leader in any other company organization, is if the team's successful, then they're successful. And hence, when I say, you know, inspire Maybe yeah, inspire, define, bring the customer voice, help the team uh, iterate and learn. And as, as they go along that process, as they'll become the self-learning machine and they can do this stuff by themselves, you can get out of the way and go on to do something else and inspire another team and inspire and solve another problem. 
Well, thank you very much for joining us, Harsh. I really appreciate your, uh, your time and your input. Thank you for having me, Brian. It was great. This is Brian Renero for Software Engineering Radio. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.